Hey guys, welcome to the LiquidiCast. I'm Ron and I'm joined here today by my co-host, Thomas Euler. He's one of the founders here at Liquidity Team. Hi, Ron. Hey, Thomas. Thanks for joining me. Um, our guest today on this podcast was John Hagley. He had quite an interesting journey in sports and in, in the the digital bubble or the internet bubble that we experienced back in the day. So he worked with Mark Cuban on Broadcasting.com, followed by Yahoo Sports through an acquisition, and over the years worked at various other sports media companies, culminating in him creating his own boutique consulting advisory firm tending to the sports industry. Yeah, and I think it was a super interesting conversation, was it not? I mean, John really is like one of the, he's an NFT OG, as I think I call him at one point, because he had a company much before the NFT hype. And yeah, I think he's an internet and sports lifer, and therefore it was a super interesting conversation. Let's hop right in, shall we? Yep, let's do it. Hi, John. Glad to have you here. Glad to be finally doing this. I guess for our listeners, it, it makes a lot of sense if you give a bit of context about yourself and in particular your journey in the sports industry, which I, I must say I find it fascinating. And uh, you've done it all. You've seen it all. Probably you can tell the story better than I can. So I pass it to you. Sure. No, and I appreciate uh, you having me, Thomas and Ron. Great to join you today. Yeah, I mean, I've been a sports kind of industry executive over 25 years and really decided very early on when I went to business school that I wanted to get into something I was passionate about and sports and entertainment has always been a big part of my life. And uh, so I really, you know, was looking for ways to kind of leverage my interest in new technologies and sports. And I was lucky enough to find my way to the NFL just at the point in time that they were starting NFL Enterprises, which was at the time in the mid 90s, a new division that they had just set up to really explore exactly that, building new digital businesses using existing intellectual property that the NFL had or looking for ways to create new intellectual property. The time that I joined, it was very much focused on an opportunity to build a subscription service using satellite TV and originally targeted for the commercial audience, but pretty quickly we saw the huge opportunity for the residential audience as well. So we built NFL Sunday Ticket, was one of the first things that NFL Enterprises did, and then uh, pretty quickly transitioned into building properties on the internet. The internet was just getting commercialized at that point in time. The NFL was one of the first to build a league website, NFL.com. We actually started with the draft in April, the year I joined, and um, built properties on behalf of the teams as well as the league, and really, you know, found our way to kind of navigating a very murky intellectual property landscape, because um, a lot of things that were occurring online, it was the Wild West, which is something you keep hearing about more and more now in different contexts. But it was a great opportunity to work with the teams, to work with the sponsorship groups, and all different areas of the league to build the web properties. And in that process, I met uh, Mark Cuban, who at the time was broadcasting Indiana basketball games to a global audience over the internet. And I was fascinated by that. And I saw a press clipping and I, I cold called Mark and he quickly returned my call and was very interested, obviously, in talking to the NFL. So we formed a relationship, did a number of deals in the early days of Mark's company, which was called AudioNet at the time. Uh, they later changed their name to Broadcast.com. And I got fascinated with the opportunities that Mark was building and capitalizing on the growth of the internet. And um, I really, after a number of years at the NFL, decided I wanted to 
go work for Mark and help build the sports channel. Just for a bit more context, so so what year are we are we talking about? Because really, th that is like the early days of the internet. And if some some of the younger people listening to us, they probably don't even remember these days. But doing video broadcasts over the internet back then was technically super challenging. There was no YouTube around back then, and and it was also yeah probably optimistic. Or the market, the addressable market, was much smaller than than back then uh, than it is today. I mean. Yeah, absolutely. And it was um, it was interesting because there certainly seemed to be a lot of demand for it. And, and we're talking about, you know, basically the mid 90s. And I started kind of getting introduced to the Internet when I was at business school and playing around with, you know, very early days, the, the early browsers and just kind of stuff that was a lot of experimental type of uh, projects that people were working on. But it quickly transformed into something that, you know, the NFL certainly quickly saw the opportunity there. Mark Cuban certainly saw the opportunity. And there were very quickly encoding codecs for audio that were, even at the time, I mean, people were still using dial-up modems. And I know you know, we're certainly dating myself here, but, you know, it was very early days. And I think the audio quality certainly wasn't perfect and certainly had a lot more glitches than it does today. But people were very understanding of that because they were getting access to content, you know, basically displaced fans that weren't in their local market, couldn't get their local radio broadcast, were living overseas, for example. And all we got was a this flood of emails and people thanking us for bringing them content that they weren't able to access. You know, remember, again, back in the mid 90s, there weren't all these packages that were available on OTT or otherwise where you could easily access out-of-market games. So this was pretty phenomenal for the audience and they were understanding the technology. And frankly, it was quite good, especially for people, you know, that wanted to listen to Major League Baseball games during the day from their desktop. So it was, it was real networks was really kind of the preeminent, I think, encoding um, software that everyone used. And It was easily downloadable and installable in people's PCs at the time. And uh, again, we were talking audio, not video. So it was a, a fairly good experience even for way back then. John, really quick, if I could just jump in. If I'm not mistaken, you kind of were involved with a little bit of marketing, a little bit of biz dev. And like, what other fields did you work in at that time? You know, it was so early stage that it was a little bit of everything. And I had, you know, some computer science and undergrad and had always been very interested in computers. I had one of the first, you know, Apple II computers when I was young. I saved up uh, all my entrepreneurial jobs to buy it. And I, I ended up doing a little bit of everything, although I wasn't strictly, you know, kind of doing coding and, and things on that technical basis. I pretty much had to understand, you know, all the different technical aspects of what we were trying to do. And frankly, we worked with a lot of partners because at the time there were people that were very specialized in areas of delivering the broadcast, whether it had been, you know, ISDN lines and using couplers to get the audio out of a stadium. And in many cases, we had to do a specific wiring for stadiums, for example, at the Super Bowl. They have all kinds of vendors that would come in and create the infrastructure that the stadium didn't have to support what the NFL wanted to do in general. And part of that became the Internet production. So we had a whole staff and devoted crew to kind of come in and create all the infrastructure we needed to do chat sessions and to do live uh, streaming from the games. And we did 
basically five different languages we streamed from this first Super Bowl that we covered. So um, it covered the gamut, everything from doing business development, worrying about the advertising side of it and how we integrated sponsors and advertisers into the broadcast to business development, to finding all these technical operational partners that we needed to kind of pull off what we were trying to do. How did people at, at the league and also at the, the legacy media, the back then big mass media, look at you guys? You came in with your internet and, and, and the audio where you like uh, the, the, the internet kids or, or what, was your, what was the reputation you had? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. And, and maybe internet kids is, uh, is an interesting way to put it. But, you know, frankly, early on at the NFL, we were kind of this little skunk works and everyone said, oh, isn't this cute? These guys are playing around on the internet because no one knew what it was. No one knew what it could eventually be. And, you know, at the time, like some new technologies today, not everyone fully understood what the internet was even all about. So we, I actually frankly loved it because we had a lot of leeway to play around with things, to um, get experimental budgets and try new technologies. And we were looking at all kinds of things that even today are still being developed. So it was a great place to be because anyone with a new technology came knocking on the NFL's door and wanted to work with us. So we saw everything as it was kind of being developed early on. But we were pretty much able to experiment and do kind of really cool things and see what worked and what didn't work. As, you know, things matured, like any business, you know, some things were starting to infringe a little bit on the NFL's legacy business, you know, especially their broadcast deals, which was obviously huge amounts of money. So anything that was going to start to infringe or, or concern our broadcast partners, while we had, you know, the leeway to experiment in the first couple of years, that started going away. And, you know, as people saw what this was kind of capable of in terms of the internet broadcast, there was a tendency at the league level to take a step back and say, well, let's really understand what's going on with rights here and how could this affect our partners on the sponsorship side, on the broadcast side. And there was a little bit more of a, you know, let's not just say yes to everything and let's consider this. And frankly, that's when I started, you know, having the conversations with Mark and got real excited about kind of the wild west that he was operating in. And the good news was at broadcast.com, it was really easy to get rights deals done. You know, no one was signing away rights for 10 years, but everyone wanted to experiment and get learning as to how could they better engage with their global audience using the online mm -hmm. media. And so people were very willing to work with us. People were very willing to meet with us and get the story of how this could help their business. And we were able to get some amazing content. And it was really the first time that something this disruptive had come along, um, or certainly in a while. So the rights holders, people that controlled the rights when I was at broadcast.com, were doing deals with us left and right that made sense for broadcast.com and made sense for them because they were getting learnings and understanding the technology better. And then they could kind of reassess a few years down the road having all that data and that understanding what made sense for their business. So um, the timeline was was kind of, it was a very exciting place to be at that point in time. And did you make more deals on the, with the teams directly or on the league level? How did it, how did it work back then to, to get a broadcast going? You know, we were trying to get um, deals where there were already entities that had aggregated rights and they could kind of just expand their distribution to the Internet. So 
It was, in some cases, you know, radio station groups that already had deals to broadcast audio to, you know, a North American audience or an audience outside the U.S., and they were able to get, you know, in some cases, extensions to their rights, or we were dealing at the league level and doing deals with Major League Baseball and the NHL, who were early partners. Um, The NFL came in to broadcast.com a little later, and, you know, I was the one being on the NFL side of the table that did the first deal with broadcast.com and, and with Mark. So, you know, I think a lot of those deals, it was more at an aggregator level. So it was leagues and entities that already had distribution rights. And then we started kind of specializing and trying to work with teams that were more, I guess, kind of tending to embrace the technology and getting more aggressive and trying to create a new and original content for their fan base. And so they started reaching out to us and really working with us collaboratively to get creative and to start creating content that was specifically made for the internet audience. And that's when it got, again, kind of exciting to another level because people weren't just taking their existing content and saying, okay, now it can be digital and we can kind of distribute it on the internet. They were saying, hey, this is a new medium. Let's do some things that really take advantage of it and create new content. And so we actually created a, a internet only show with Fox Sports and Pat Summerall was a obviously well-known NFL broadcaster at the time. And so we created a weekly show really with existing talent, but something that was made specifically for the internet audience. It's kind of an interesting story to me because of how like cyclical it sounds. I mean, it, it's it's a testament to like technological advancement that I mean, the issues that you were having, John, are kind of similar to what we're having right now in blockchain is that, you know, you have to first convince the market that consumer adoption is is worthy with blockchain. And you got you guys kind of had the, the same problems back then. And it's just I don't know, it's it's very interesting to me that, you know, it's cyclical and we're we're dealing with the same stuff. Uh, the the question that I wanted to ask you is um, like. You had to you had to first convince the people to use the medium, and you also had to convince companies to adopt the technology as well. Like, what were some of like the challenges that you guys had with that? I mean, you're you're trying to tend to two different customers essentially. So, like, uh, how did that work out for you? It's interesting. I think the audience side speaks to the power and the. Um the value of sports content, because I think once the content was available, the audience side took care of itself. I mean, people figured out what they needed to do to stream at the time, audio and then video. They figured out, you know, what they needed from computing power standpoint to make that experience good. And from a bandwidth standpoint, and they just did it. Uh, Like we weren't spending a lot of time trying to drive adoption from the audience side because there was great content available fairly early on from the internet side and the audience found that content very quickly. And, you know, you talk about things going viral. I think if as soon as someone found out that they could get access to uh, their local NFL broadcast when they were over in Germany, where they didn't have that access before they figured it out. Uh, So that was the good news. I think on the, um, you know, again, on the client side, on the rights holder side, we kind of, I touched on that was a little bit easier at the time. And, and perhaps unfortunately, as you, to your point about it being cyclical and, and seeing some of the same challenges now with adoption of a blockchain, I think the deals we were able to do back in the mid nineties with a very new technology and very valuable rights 
and bringing those things together in a pretty frictionless way, I think a lot of rights holders got a little bit apprehensive about that. They saw, you know, the enterprise value that that broadcast.com had when we went public and then when we got bought by Yahoo. And they felt like, you know, at the time, it was really off of the backs of their intellectual property. So how should this essentially aggregator and technology provider have this valuation? And why shouldn't we be uh, going public with our own assets? Because we're the, really the rights holders that control them. And there was a point in time, it was shortly after Yahoo bought broadcast.com. And I was out in Silicon Valley at the Yahoo offices. And we had different leagues coming in at the highest levels, commissioners and their bankers and consultants. And they were all at the time exploring how they could put their assets into a league controlled entity and potentially, you know, realize this market value that some of these internet startups were realizing. So all the leagues, I think at at the point in time, were kind of taking a step back and saying, are we, how do we maximize our assets on the internet? And I think as a result of all that study and some of those experiences, doing rights deals with new technologies now are much more challenging than they were back in the mid nineties. Yeah, I can, I can only imagine. I mean, you already mentioned the, the Yahoo purchase, which we were at your journey. So, so what did you do after got acquired broadcast.com? Yeah. So after we were acquired, I was here in New York. Um, I went out to lived in San Francisco and, and worked on behalf of Yahoo sports really kind of At the time going, the business was shifting from just being kind of aggregating audience and getting as big as fast as we could and to really kind of treating sports as its own channel and its own P&L. So, you know, one of the things I went out there and started focusing on was not only the content deals, which was, you know, a continuation of what I was doing at broadcast.com, but really setting up sports as its own P&L. And that meant bringing in salespeople that could sell sports in a traditional sponsorship oriented model, which you know was kind of being sold on a network basis at the time. Mm-hmm. And so we, you know, started selling sports in, in more traditional ways with sponsors. We started creating premium and subscription services. Uh, we built out, you know, the fantasy gaming and ways to kind of engage the fan base uh, once you had them on the network, how you could feed them into other areas of Yahoo. So Spent a lot of time, you know, really kind of on the management side as well as the business development side, building out the business. And then lo and behold, you know. And how was like, I don't know if you have these insights, but back then I would be curious, like, like how important was was sport like as a, so in, in terms of search volume on Yahoo and in terms of traffic on Yahoo, was it like one of the big drivers, at least for a US audience back then, or was it, or, or was it just like a niche subject? It's a good question, uh, and I don't have recollection of the stats specifically, but I'll, I'll say you know Yahoo had very big properties when it came to news, when it came to finance, yeah, uh, and finance was was a bigger property than sports at the time. But we were very much looking at our competitive set as being you know kind of ESPN, and we you know did a lot of things to build the Yahoo Sports traffic off of people that were already coming there for weather, finance, for their emails, to do auctions, you know, all the different properties that were under the Yahoo umbrella. But um, sports was one of the top three properties, I'd say. All right. So, so, so was Yahoo already back then also so strong in the content creation part and Yahoo Sports? Not creation. It was all licensed content, essentially. So right. in finance, um, 
you know, as, as my tenure at Yahoo evolved, once I got out there, we started getting more into original content creation, especially on the finance side. They created a whole studio and they were doing, you know, kind of these talking head shows around the openings. And yeah, and even on sports, at some point they had Vuj, Adrian Wojnarowski and, yeah. and so on. So, so there was a time when they were really good in the, in the sports content game. And, and still to this day, they are, have highly relevant yeah. writers. But that was, I, I assumed that it was a bit uh, after, after your time that I, I at least saw this more happening on your That's home. correct. It was, it was really after my time. Most of what we were doing was... Um, really, again, kind of licensing specific content, maybe doing some things like I mentioned with um, internet specific shows that were were kind of offered up by clients or we had an idea for a sponsor and we created some, you know, back then even branded content, if you will. But it was mostly just aggregating licensed content from partners at the time that I was there. I don't know if you used the same term in the US, but here in Germany, we used to call it content syndication. And my former boss, he was early on in the German media industry doing a lot of these syndication deals. And that was really the, the thing that companies did and how legacy companies got in there. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. So cool. And then you were building out Yahoo Sports, which I mean, to this day is one of those super relevant brands in the in like the sports media business. And until what time did you did you stay there? Because you had at least, I think the acquisition of Broadcast.com was pre-burst of the internet bubble, right? It was like one of these record acquisitions back in the day. Yeah, that's correct. It was, um, it was an all-stock deal. And I think the valuation at the time was over $6 billion. And so I was out there really through the burst of the bubble and, and it became the motivation for kind of the next step in, in my career. You know, I think back in 2000 and then we got to early 2001 and, and really Yahoo at that point it experienced a lot of turnover. There were people that had, you know, vested in stock options that were worth quite a bit of money at the time. And I think they just realized it was time to kind of change from at the point that, you know, early days of the internet, everyone had to be on Yahoo. It was really kind of the main portal or gateway to anything you were doing commercially on the internet. And I think that slowly changed as competitors came and then the internet bubble burst and they started bringing in new management and getting more into thinking about content creation. And there was just a huge turnover and I became uh, one of those statistics I was ready to come back to New York where I'm from and um, it seemed like a good jumping off point for me to come back and I found my way into working with more of a traditional sports marketing agency called Van Wagner Sports and Entertainment. The parent company was a large out-of-home advertising company and Van Wagner's sports endeavors at the time were really more or less focused on the signage you see in-game, you know, courtside and basketball and behind home plate and baseball. And they were really kind of creating an unwired network of selling that inventory on behalf of the teams. And really, you know, they own the hardware as well, but they used that hardware to really kind of create this network in those relationships. So I worked with them to build their sports marketing business, diversify that, and um, had a great career there for 12 years, working in different areas of Van Wagner, building their, their sports business. Before you went back to New York, were you set on going to going to New York, and you only considered this, or did you did you also look into Silicon Valley based opportunities? I looked at it a little bit, and um, you know, I had some ideas and some conversations with eBay, and and just I think you know some things that seemed like they would be logical progressions to 
doing things in the sports and entertainment space um, in the Silicon Valley companies. But, you know, frankly, with what was happening in the industry and, and the bubble bursting and didn't seem super attractive at the time. <laughs> it didn't seem super attractive. I could have stuck it out at there, but really I felt like home was back here on the East Coast. And uh, when 9-11 happened, I had, you know, a lot of family and friends in the area and I just felt far away being on the West Coast. So I think that's what really kind of all those things came together and, and made the decision fairly easy to come back to the Northeast. What would interest me, if you can, from your recollection, how, because so what happened over the, the internet industry in, let's say, the last 10 years, you had more and more essentially media, the content industry, the, the digital, the internet industry, tech has all merged together and now all big tech companies are in the media game and so on. But that was not the situation back then, right? There was no no Apple TV, no Amazon Prime and all these services. And and I wonder how, how seriously, besides maybe maybe Yahoo, like the bigger tech companies, were, were they already looking at sports? Was it interesting to them or was there just no crossover between tech and sports around those? time internet bubble briefly after not that i can recall really there were obviously a lot of intersection and, and i guess growth conversations with the bigger media companies particularly those that were already rights holders of different sports programming so you know i think they were trying to build out their content offering and and certainly wanted to provide the audience that knew them for their tv broadcasts of different games and events you know, really leverage that on the online space. And um, games were a big part of it. I mean, at Yahoo, we spent a lot of time and resources building our fantasy sports business, which to this day is still one of the bigger businesses on Yahoo. And I think, you know, there were those types of engagement opportunities early on that media companies that were thinking about. And, you know, to me, it was kind of just the logical evolution of things when you now see kind of what's happening with OTT. I mean, Broadcast.com was was really the start of that in the early days. And, you know, we weren't the only ones streaming content online, but, you know, it seems like the logical evolution of, you know, kind of getting intermediaries out of the, you know, out of that middle spot, if you don't need them and going more direct to consumer, you know, I think that's a lot of what the media companies, as well as the rights holders in the leagues, you know, all were thinking about when they wanted to experiment with Broadcast.com. You know, I think, They all probably thought about, you know, should we be doing our own broadcast as opposed to licensing this to other media companies? And you saw well after I left Yahoo, it was really kind of when I was at Van Wagner, I think, where you had these different leagues setting up their own, you know, NBA TVs and NFL TVs and, and really starting to kind of build their own presence in a terrestrial broadcast fashion. And then the next evolution step there was on the OTT side. So when did you, as as someone, okay, you were in the super early, I, I would classify as super early sports tech overlap world. And then probably if, if I'm not mistaken, you went a bit more on the sports, traditional sports side and the sports business. But but when when did you see in the sports business that digitization, that the not only as a technology, but as a way to really connect with your audience started to get taken very seriously by executives in the sports industry around what time is it like when people started to talk about web 2.0 is it a bit later when is it basically an, an unavoidable topic in the in the sports industry and not just the the internet kids yeah it's a really good question because 
you know, I think my perspective is, is skewed versus, you know, maybe others that you would ask that question to, because I was having meetings and, and it was with, uh, you know, even going back to the broadcast.com days, it was with the highest levels of broadcast departments or marketing folks uh, within the leagues or the media companies themselves. And these were people that, you know, had been around and I think worked very hard to understand what was around the corner. And they took it seriously, even in the days of broadcast.com. And although they did deals that maybe they wouldn't be doing today, I'm certainly not sitting here and saying they did the wrong deals because I think they were smart to get the learnings that they did and to really engage early on where it could have been very easy to just say, no, you know, you guys are too small. The audience is too small. It's not worth my time or my resources or effort. And they didn't say that they, they, they engaged with it at the very early stages. So I feel like it's always been taken seriously and it's just been of, you know, how, how much are these companies putting in resource wise to more engage with it? And I think that certainly has increased over time, but I've seen it as kind of a progression kind of being in the perspective that I have. And I think that everyone's taken it very seriously from, from day one to their credit. I wouldn't have had the expectation that everyone necessarily would have done it that way. Yeah. So then in, in that sense, I can, I can also well imagine that the experience in the, in the U S living through it is quite different than, than our German perspective here, where, where there is a hesitancy with the new people don't like the internet so much. People don't like digital innovation. I mean, by now, nobody can deny that it changed everything and we live in a completely different world than, than we did uh, 20 or 30 years ago. But still, you have like a certain ambiguity among people. And, and the, the US, of course, is much more open and, and frankly also built the leading tech and internet companies of the world together with China a bit later then. But Thomas, like I would really say that I wish the Europeans didn't see it that way. I mean, as I currently live in Europe, in Germany, just like you do. And um, this, this descent toward digitalization in sports is something that's pretty unfortunate, in my opinion. Definitely. Yeah, especially because, I mean, uh, recently I was reading an article that like 90% of all revenue is generated digitally. It's, so live in-stadium experience only accounts for like 10%. So with that in mind, I mean, it's That's where all the fans are. That's where the that's where the attention is. And and if teams or if fans are preventing teams and sports entities from going digital, it's only hurting their own experience. Yeah, of course. I think I think I mean it's a broad. It's not just a sports problem. I mean, I worked in consulting and working with like these corporates that we have in the traditional industries that we have over here, right? Like automotive, energy companies, insurance banks, so so. And you have this same hesitancy to to jump onto the new stuff and on the internet from pretty early on and i think it's definitely a cultural phenomenon i don't even know whether or not it's the same across europe i mean there are very different cultures and mindsets that we have i think for instance in in france they were much more open i mean they even had like every household had what, what was it called not btx i don't recall the name but they they had their version of the internet even before the the internet the world wide web on on uh, devices in in most households actually back then so so there is a different mindset going on but yeah super interesting subject that we could spend another another two yeah. three four podcast episodes t talking about how, how that is happening but let's get let's get back to to john maybe so what is the what is then the next station in the sports industry that you hop on and the next interesting project that you 
take on? So after about 12 years at Van Wagner and the parent company was, was sold to um, CBS Outdoor and, and, you know, basically after that amount of time, I was kind of ready for something new. I wanted to get back into something that was more tech focused. And again, we were doing a lot more on kind of the traditional sports marketing side of things. So it was a good jumping off point for me. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do other than, you know, that kind of broad criteria that I just mentioned. And I kind of found my way to the blockchain back in 2016. Really smart CTO guy that I had met years earlier when I was at Van Wagner and we'd stayed in touch. And he had this idea for using blockchain for ticketing. Um, at the time, it was Bitcoin blockchain. And, uh, you know, basically, I'm a person that knows it from the rights holder side, but also I'm a huge participant in terms of going to live events, whether it be music or sports. And I had all kinds of frustrations as a consumer from a ticketing standpoint. And so the idea really resonated with me. He sent me a bunch of materials. I read up on what the blockchain was, and I only knew it from kind of hearing about Bitcoin and, and didn't understand the technology behind it or really anything else. And as I got smarter, um, Ethereum was just starting to kind of hit more of the mainstream in terms of you know, the capabilities you had there with smart contracts. And all of a sudden we were like, we have to do this because Ethereum is perfect for what we're trying to do. So I went from, you know, an informal advisor to saying, I want in on this. I'm, I, I totally believe in the opportunity and became a co-founder in a company called Upgraded. And we really, you know, raised some money and were able to build an MVP, frankly, fairly easily because we weren't reinventing the wheel. We were using the blockchain as kind of our backend infrastructure. And you know, certainly at the time, a lot of what we were doing was uh, this hybrid approach. It was a private blockchain that we had set up and we were doing a number of kind of transaction processes off chain to get away from, you know, some of the delays and the lag that you have there. But we created an unbelievable product that, you know, essentially was an NFT ticket um, going back to 2016. And obviously that's become a huge buzzword now. And all of a sudden, People are talking about blockchain ticketing as this new exciting thing, but you know we basically built the functionality uh, that we thought you needed from a consumer standpoint and a rights holder standpoint. We had a number of partners that did some very successful case studies with us and loved what the technology was doing. But all roads, you know, eventually led to the big ticketing companies, whether it be the ticket masters of the world on the primary or the stub hubs or vivid seats on the secondary side of it. And that was fine with us because we had built this to be a technology that was going to be licensed to anyone that wanted to have a better digital ticketing solution instead of sending someone a PDF that could be copied and sent around multiple times. We had something that was essentially non-fungible and could be tied uniquely. So each ticket was essentially its own NFT. I think that was a super smart strategy because, I mean, I never looked too deep into into the ticketing space, but of course, it, it was one of the obvious use cases when we started to to work yeah. on liquidity a bit later than you did. So you're really like one of the uh, blockchain ticketing OGs, so to yeah, speak. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> the godfather. And again, that's kind of a place I, I enjoy being in terms of, you know, really figuring out exciting applications, uh, consumer-focused applications using new technology. So... It, it was a lot of fun. And, and we went through, you know, in 2017, the ICO craze where everyone started kind of creating their own tokens and raising a bunch of money off of white papers. And uh, 
we had people calling us every day saying, you guys really need to do an ICO. We can help you raise all this money. We had Why did you not do it? That's interesting because I was also in the blockchain space at the time. And I, so, so I didn't have a product back then to do it, but uh, I, was, I was working with a few startups here, actually the one that wanted to do the first uh, BaFin authorized and, and uh, approved uh, ICO in Germany, which then uh, didn't really come to, to fruition, even though Baf, we had BaFin approval in the end. But uh, why did you, with the product, decide not to do an ICO? It's a good question. It's kind of a combination of things. I mean, number one, our our whole premise in the product we were building, and obviously, you know, at that early stage, you need to have an extreme focus on what's important. And we weren't building anything that had to do with cryptocurrency. So to all of a sudden try to transition what we were building into cryptocurrency or token type of model would have really, I think, taken us off track. I certainly, you know, before I got into sports, was in the financial services industry and certainly had a feeling that, you know, what was happening for that short period of time wasn't going to be sustainable and there were going to be regulatory issues, certainly within the U.S. And, and all these competitors that raised money for blockchain ticketing and ICOs were all outside the U.S. And some of them raised, you know, to the tune of $40 million. And they still we had a product that was out in the market and they still had a white paper with no product even under development yet. So. It just didn't feel right, to, to be honest, and, and we didn't necessarily need the easy money. Hey, John, there is the Wild West again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And God bless, you know, some of these companies are, are still going and some of them were, you know, gone uh, within weeks of, of raising the, the, all that money. So I think our intuition was correct and I think our focus was warranted and, and you know, we just kind of stayed the course and did what we needed to do. And, and we weren't looking for a lot of money, so... We didn't need to worry about having $30 million in the bank at that point in time. Um, I, I think our approach was the right one. And, and I mean, while the first intuition is to probably say, ah, but it wouldn't hurt, right, to have it. I, I think in, in many cases in the in the actual ICO world, it, it may be deterred because it becomes so easy to, to just spend, spend, spend. And we have a good saying in Germany, what we say, not macht erfinderisch, like, like not, or oh, how can I translate this? I don't know, if, if, if you don't have anything, you need to be inventive. It makes you inventive. And that is really something that is so true in the startup world and i can just uh, yeah i think you made pretty pretty smart and, and good choices there from saying you don't want to compete with the big guys like ticketmaster and all the deals they have in place and it's so hard because everybody in concert uh, in music everybody in sports has like these deals in place and to say hey i built i built a technology that these guys can license to to offer a better product that, that, that is a good choice not going especially in the us i mean there are some us based prominent uh, uh, ICOs. And if you look what happened to them, yeah. uh, the SEC, not quite happy. And uh, yeah. yeah, I think if we fast forward to today, we see that like the, N the NFT craze that is currently passing, if maybe already passed by us, is kind of like our generation's version of like the ICO craze that you experienced. So I guess like my question to you is like, Where do you see it headed? Uh, I keep I hear whispers or, or inklings of this like NFT 2.0 and and this you know like how, how do we utilize NFTs in a way that that there's actually some utilitarian you know aspect to them and it's not just a, a digital asset that you own and look at and and hope it increases in value. So so where do you see that going? Yeah, and, and this is probably another one where we could spend another one or two podcasts probably just diving yeah. into this subject. But yeah, it's 
it's a really good, obviously timely question. And when we ended up selling upgraded to, to Ticketmaster, you know, they were the first ones we approached to license our tech and they just said, you know, we've seen the other guys, you guys nailed it. Um, we'd rather just have you exclusively than have you work with our competitors. So we had, you know, a quicker exit than we were anticipating. And I was looking for what was next in blockchain. And at the point in time, everyone wanted to say they were doing something on blockchain because that was the buzzword of the day and that was going to help them raise money. And it got very noisy and I didn't really see anything super compelling until, you know, really we got into this COVID period and sports shut down and it seemed like some innovation really started on the blockchain side, or at least that's when I really focused in on it and, you know, saw what was happening with this NFT 1.0 craze. And I did think a lot about that. It was, you know, a bit of this um, kind of gold rush mentality, a little bit of what we saw in the ICO period of, of 2017. And you kind of saw it crest and then come down and, you know, whether you want to call it a bubble and the bubble bursting or what have you, I certainly don't think, you know, NFTs are going anywhere and, and the functionality of them, utility is only going to get better. So I, over this, having some downtime without sports being played and figuring out what was next, I spent a lot of time following what was happening with blockchain and consumer-based applications and NFTs were one of the primary areas. And I think it's a combination of NFTs, it's um, the ability to do fractional ownership, it's the digital collectibles and, you know, how that's really taking hold with the younger generation, but also, you know, kind of the speculators that are out there that, you know, kind of want to trade things on marketplaces and, and get involved in that kind of speculative nature of alternative asset classes. So I see kind of NFTs 2.0 being a combination of some of those things, as well as, you know, kind of these in-game marketplaces that we're used to where people have spent a lot of money on virtual goods and that's been around for a long time. And, and so NFTs 2.0 is where I really started getting excited about blockchain again and kind of where this can all go, among other things. I mean, again, it, I, I'm saying NFTs, but I think it's more broadly talking about kind of like tokenizing and gamifying what's going on with fan engagement and kind of what's the next experience. Because you know, really all those experiences I just went through in my past, there's been this thread and, and this kind of excitement level on my side of being in the fan engagement business. And how do you make live events, sports events, more entertaining and stickier for fans so that they can engage with the passions that they have year round and not necessarily during a live event. So I, I think NFT 2.0 is going to come. Um, I think the blockchain kind of underlying technology is maturing a lot of the hurdles that were there in dealing with converting cryptocurrencies and setting up wallets, making sure everything is secure from that perspective is, is getting dealt with and going to be a lot easier to what people are used to doing. And I think there's going to be more of a dynamic nature to NFTs. They're going to have more value. They're going to have more value outside of just the ecosystems that they're in now where you will have something that can be usable on other platforms or with other properties. And that can be a sharing of, of an NFT or a token with a brand and a league and a team and a game publisher. And, you know, you start getting a lot of value in that NFT that goes well beyond kind of the speculative collectible aspect of it. But, you know, hey, by the way, 
it also has that component to it too. So you're really going to be able to reach a more casual kind of, I think, broader audience. And you're really going to have something that's much more compelling and you're going to give fans a reason to care about the NFT much more so than, hey, if I buy this for a dollar, can I sell it for $5 on a marketplace in a few weeks? To, hey, if I buy this for a dollar, I'm super excited because it's something I'm passionate about and it's a great way for me to, um, you know, have a, a way to kind of demonstrate to people my passion. But beyond that, I'm going to have all this value and it's going to open up access to experiences yeah. that I otherwise couldn't get and games that I otherwise couldn't play. And, and that's when it gets really cool. And I think, so even just on the, on the wording level, when we talk about NFT 2.0, then maybe we should start not talking about NFTs at all anymore, because it's just, I, I mean, if you think about it, NFT, uh, it's a blockchain-based token that has certain properties and is a standard. But that, that is not something that, that, that the user is interested in. And it also doesn't speak about what do you do with the NFT because much to, to your history, I mean, you built before anybody called NFTs, non-fungible tokens, NFTs, you, you built a ticketing service around this property that you, can, that you can do stuff like this. And then people started to say, hey, cool, let's do crypto kitties as the first thing that went mainstream in the crypto world and then and then top shot and so on came along that made basically collectibles digital collectibles but still you can do ticketing maybe you can even take entire other rights classes and put them into nfts think about taking ip rights think about name image likeness rights or, or biometrical data or, or stuff like this right you can put many things into into this container this wrapper and and there is always a point so, so at some point people start people talk about technology but then w once you find the the, the really good use case Cases and the wording and the language and a more nuanced way to speak about this, it, it really turns into something that, that the market can grasp more and, and understand better. Because, right, so they're definitely digital collectibles are one thing, but I think many of the other use cases that will leverage the, the properties and capabilities of, of non-fungible tokens will, will also be very interesting in and beyond sports. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And I think... Um... You know, right or wrong, NFT means something pretty specific to pretty much anyone you, you mention it to. And I think it's, you know, along the lines of what we're seeing today, which is, I think, much more specific applications. I mean, no one back in 2016 were calling our tickets NFTs, although essentially they were. And I think all these future applications that we're talking about, they're probably not going to be called NFTs. So, um, you know, I think it, it is a little bit misleading to characterize everything as an NFT right now. Yeah, I mean, we stopped we stopped talking about HTML documents at yeah. some point, right? And then we just have services and different things that happen on top of this. But 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 I think from a from a tech layer standpoint, that is where we are with NFTs. We are we are doing HTML documents right, right now. I agree with you. Yeah, it, it NFTs kind of kind of. To me, NFTs became, uh, I was a little nervous about NFTs, how, how big it was getting, how everyone was talking about it. I mean, at one point, like my mom messaged me and she was, you know, wanted to make an NFT of her <laughs> holding her cat. And it's like, it became uncool in my mind. It was like when my mom joined yeah. Facebook, I wanted out. Yeah. Yeah. All these cycles happen quickly today, but 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 so John, if we take one step back, I mean you are you are really a sports and internet lifer, one could one could say, and so what do you see as like the the big challenges for for the sports industry right right now in general, and then specifically in the context of of digitization? 
Wow. It's, it's probably a, a growing list. I'd say, you know, COVID certainly added to the length of that list. Uh, but, you know, go, let's go back a little bit even before COVID. I think, you know, the, the more traditional leagues are wrestling with a bifurcation of their audience. You have almost across the board, the leagues with an aging kind of traditional fan base and they're used to watching, you know, three hour games on TV and you had, you know, the cord cutters or the cord nevers and the younger generation that there's no way. I mean, I have a 12 year old son and he's not sitting there on the couch watching an NFL game with me. And, and I don't think that will ever happen. And it never did happen. He's going to get what he wants from highlights and social media and, and a lot of other digital kind of first venues versus watching a broadcast, whether it's offered on his computer or on traditional TV set over linear broadcast. So I think all the leagues need to figure out ways to better address and embrace the younger fan base and then grow the fan base. So some of that is, you know, things that the leagues are addressing with grassroots youth programming to get them playing the sports, because obviously that's a great pathway to get a fan is if they understand the sport, and they play it, but you certainly don't need to yeah, play a sport definitely. to be a fan. So, you know, what can these rights holders be doing to embrace the younger fan base? And a lot of them are trying to shorten the length of the game, but it's really going to go well beyond that. It's going to be, you know, how do you serve the highlight generation even better and create, you know, more customized content. You're really going to have to be able to speak kind of one-to-one -one with your fan base and technology is going to enable that. So that's a huge problem. It was there before COVID. I think it's more pronounced now because revenue pressures are, are higher than ever having missed, you know, over a year of, of the live audiences where a bulk of their revenue comes from. You really need to figure out how to get people in some cases back into the seats, because I think it's probably more entertainment now than it is sports and your entertainment choices. When you look at it with that lens are greater than they ever were. So how do you get someone motivated enough to come and sit in a seat and watch the event or motivated enough to view your content online? And beyond that, how do you get them off of social media platforms that is where they're really aggregating now. And those platforms are areas that you don't control. You don't have a lot of visibility into the data and the interactions with the fan base to platforms that you do control uh, because it's, you know, data is the new gold. Data is the currency that's going to drive this one-to-one -one marketing and, and kind of how you grow your fan base intelligently and engage your fan base that you do have. And I think there's a need to have more of an ownership and a direct communication with the fan base. And that's, you know, kind of leveraging the social audiences that you have and getting them onto properties and things that you control more directly. And you're seeing that happen from athletes going more directly to their fan base and creating products that they're selling directly to their fan base and having great success to, I think, you know, more of a demand for teams and rights holders to start doing that. So that, that to me is a, is a huge area that I think everyone's trying to wrestle with and figure out. Yeah, like owning the fan relationship in the digital realm. I mean, I mean, you basically, I, I say spot on. I, I completely agree. It's um, many of the points you make uh, are the reasons why we why we founded and work on on liquidity and and our LT fan platform specifically. So so th that is 
clearly the case. And I think what goes along with this to, to add to the list you're describing is also audience segmentation to, to understand, have, I, I mean, to, to personalize uh -huh. content, you definitely need to be able to, to segment your audience and there to think much broader than, than, I don't know what the current standard methodologies are. I don't know if people in the industry usually have like persona models that try to be a bit more specific, but, but especially the type of fan that is like highlight driven, but still maybe a hardcore fan, maybe playing video games a lot. There are you need different strategies to to monetize those fans' passion and attention, which is just they they, they do it differently. I mean, I for one, look, I'm a huge NBA fan. I'm in the diaspora, right? I will never go to, or probably I will once travel to the US and watch a basketball game, and it will be one of my lifetime highlights, maybe. But by and large, I don't go to the stadium, and and I I do have a league pass subscription that I pay for that I rarely use during the playoffs. I try to watch uh, the, the the games. But during the regular season, just too many games, I cannot. So I watch some some highlights. But my my way of of consuming the league and following the league is podcasts. To be uh, honest, I have my four or five NBA podcasts, and I listen to them. And and now, what sports media has become super super good at, uh, especially in the NBA, I think they are they are super advanced there. But in the US, I loosely, very loosely follow follow different sports. You are generally good at like telling the story of sports and connecting with audiences. And now you have really this 24-7 news cycle in the NBA where, where even when there is no season, many media guys tell me, hey, it's peak traffic site when the off-season because people care so much now about the free agency and almost the business behind it. And it's a different kind of fandom. But in there, in, in my mind, there lies a huge, huge opportunity because that is, I, I mean, People want content. They want to follow the sport in different ways that are bespoke to their to their lifestyle, to what they can do. But but currently, it's mostly done by sports media. And I would so one of my hypotheses about the future, and I would be curious to learn your take on this, is there will be a convergence between sports media and rights holders. So I don't think they will get into objectively covering their own team. And doing the critical reporting, but they have they have the top-notch access to the stories people care about, to players and to the behind-the-scenes stories. And, and I think so, so if I would be a team president and I would consider doing my OTT service, life would be only a one part of of the content mix that I would create and I would create all these other shows tailored to my fan base like like every big team in the US has like several fan podcasts fan bloggers and so on and just aggregate all this type of content that is not in nature traditionally journalistic but it's definitely professionally produced content and this helps to reach the digital audiences and I think is a great business opportunity Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And, and you know, I think it's like with anything, if you think of the individual teams as, you know, their own businesses, it kind of runs the spectrum of some teams that, you know, are, are kind of embracing the old way of doing things and aren't necessarily looking to be progressive. And they'll eventually kind of follow along when other demands kind of dictate that. And then there are teams that are already, you know, aggressively pushing the envelope and doing exactly what you're saying, where they're creating this amazing kind of insider content access to behind the scenes. And, you know, these fans, they want to get as close to the athletes and the game that they love as possible and providing this insight to where, you know, you normally would not have access to it is phenomenal programming and is a great way to build your audience and engagement. And there's some teams that 
you know, are doing a great job at that. And again, others that are, are not necessarily so aggressive, but I think all of them will have to get there in some form or fashion. Yeah, I think I think those NFL like training camp documentaries that a lot of NFL teams are putting up on YouTube were like, it was like a fan's dream. It's everything we wanted. I mean, those they all also have those that all or mm-hmm. nothing documentary, I think is what it's called. Man, that's just like gold for any NFL fan, for any any anyone who's serious about the NFL. It's, it's, yeah, I agree completely. Well, guys, I think we'll we'll do a, a quick little wrap up here. I think that was a a fantastic podcast, John. Thank you so much for joining us. It was a uh, great to hear insights. Great to hear kind of your journey as you as you you know you were really in the thick of things as sports really turned that corner and digitalization kind of kind of reared its head. So uh, thanks. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And uh, it was fun taking a trip down memory lane. Great talking with you guys. Cool. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye.